All right, everybody. Get in your seats. We can continue the conversation as usual. I like to have some sort of discussion question to get us circulating around the same topic. So the question for today is, um, it's kind of a doozy, what's something that someone said about you that has stuck with you for years? It can be positive or negative, whatever you decide to share. What's something that someone has said about you that has stuck with you for years? Okay, so feel free to get into groups of no more than four, three or four, and we can talk about this question. What's something that someone has said to you that has stuck with you for years? Go. All right, let's rearrange our seats again. And if I can have Johnny come up, he's going to read for us the word of the Lord today. Let's go, John A. James 3. Oh, yeah, James 3. Um, is it on? Okay, it's right there. Never mind, never mind. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, stating the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear, oil, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace, peaceful, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That was a long one. We are going through the book of James in a sermon series called Everyday Righteousness. It's, uh, you know, even in our most, most recent sermon series, if you guys were there for the theology of work, uh, you know, we talk about scenarios that may come up every once in a while. Some of us may not even be at work. Um, we might be in school. It may not be entirely rev relevant for every single day. But uh, everyday righteousness, going through the book of James, it's hitting on topics that we encounter on the daily. Like every moment, we could be thinking about the things that are brought up in the book of James. And I love that there's so much practical application 
um, in this book, and it also just cuts to the core of, of who we are, how we think, and how we need to grow and change. So, you know, we talked about things like favoritism, how all of us have the potential to be tempted with that. We talked about um, displaying our faith through works. We talked about being tested in our faith. All, the thing, all these things are just day-to-day -day regular activities. And so today we're going to go even more practical. We're going to talk about words, and that's, gonna, that's what we're going to talk about. I have a lot of words to say about words, so let's pray, and we'll get right into it. God, we thank you for giving us your word, uh, this in, spirit-inspired uh, collection of scripture, God-breathed, that we can learn and grow and be shaped and changed by. Or this is... Uh, just not hearing some sort of special TED talk, but this is truly uh, the word of the Lord um, from your heart to our ears. I pray that we would hear uh, what you have to say to us today. Um, and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Words create worlds. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and every word spoken shapes the reality around you like a sculptor's hands pressing into a lump of clay. Once there were mere acquaintances, and now there's lifelong relationships starting. Once there was a baby, but now there's a little human that doesn't just look like you, but, but talks and thinks like you. Once there was a void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and out of God's deep, full heart uh, came the source of transforming power that would create and shape the world as we know it, and his words were the things that created worlds. Let there be light, and there was light. Let dry land appear, and it was so. Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth. Let us make man in our own image, and it was very good. His words led the charge into the void, and his creative forming power followed his words. His words, matter itself, became obedient into existence because of what he said. And when God made us humans in his image, he entrusted us with his attributes. He gave us the capacity to rule and reign over the animals. He gave us hands and feet with dexterity and coordination to accomplish great things. But he also gave us the creative power to make worlds with our words. And the power of words is not just noted in the Bible. It's displayed through the turning points of empires, the moments of change for entire movements, entire populations have been shaped and changed and built up and destroyed by words. One of the most famous speeches of all time was delivered by, at least in American history, delivered by Abraham Lincoln in the Gettysburg Address. And the one that starts with four score and seven years ago, you guys might remember it. And concisely, in ten sentences, he encapsulated the, the sacrifice of lives lost during the Civil War and the declaration that all men are created equal. His speech influenced uh, governments in uh, France. And it's, his, it's quoted in this Constitution of France, and in a way it's borrowed in the Constitution of Japan. There's clear callbacks to that. The Lincoln Memorial, where his Gettysburg Address is carved in stone, was where Martin Luther King also had a world-changing speech, I Have a Dream. And 
personally, for me, the timeline of my life can easily be cleanly split into two, and it hinged on two words that I said almost 10 years ago. I do. Before, I was but a man. But after I became one flesh with someone else, I, my hopes and dreams became one with someone else. My bank account became one with someone else. And these two words were the declaration before God and man that I was committed to Deborah for my entire life. Uh, and my world was never the same. Words create worlds. But if we do not respect it, then words can destroy worlds as well. Like how my three-year-old daughter said last week that I looked like a stop sign. And I don't think I'll ever re recover from that. <laughs> I don't know. And, and not long, that's gonna, those words are going to stick with me. But not long after God used his words to create us, how did the serpent tempt Eve? Was it not with words of his own? And remember that what those words were? What did the serpent say? He said, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His plan of attack was to undermine the very words that God spoke. And sin just came crashing into the world as we know it. It's the way Satan tempts us today, by the way, by asking the same question that the serpent asks. Did God really say this? Did God really say that you would be fulfilled? Did God really say that he would fulfill your promises? All of those things the Satan does. It's through words. I think about the Tower of Babel, how man and his hubris wanted to make a name for themselves, and they conspired together to be even greater and build something even higher so that they could be like God. And uh, what did God do to humble them? Did he not take away the power of their words, change their language, and scatter them across the nation? Um, I think about the rise of Hitler and how it was through his rousing speeches that he was able to convince hundreds and thousands to just partake in one of the worst atrocities known to man. He was cold, mesmerizing, methodological, and it was all used for evil. Proverbs 18.21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And once we start kind of like acknowledging that frightening power that words have, I think that's like the, the foundation that I want to set as we dive into James 3. So I'll start from the top, verse 1. It says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. And so Jacob, the writer uh, we call James, uh, is providing a warning to everyone who is entrusted with teaching, like myself. We will be, you know, judged with greater strictness. The words that we say have bearing uh, a special bearing because of the fact that we use words to teach and create worlds to someone else. And it's completely understandable. If you had to give someone a gun, you don't entrust anyone with it, but hopefully someone that you've done a background check with, uh, someone who is shown to be responsible in every other facet of their life. Um, it's one thing if you're able to control your actions. A lot of people can do that. Um, like you know, refraining from physically hurting someone, 
or stealing from someone, but if you can control what comes out of your mouth to everyone, Jacob would say, you're a perfect man. You're perfect. And it's that hard. It's like impossible to control. And he gives seven illustrations um, throughout this passage about what it's like to have a wayward tongue. So I'll just quickly list them out. It's in between verses 1 through 12. It says he's like, uh, a tongue is like a bit on a horse. It's like the rudder of a boat. It's like the start of a fire. It's like deadly poison. It's like a spring that pours out fresh and salt water. It's like a fig tree bearing olives. It's like a grapevine producing figs. So I'm going to split these uh, metaphors in half, and we're just going to talk about what, what those themes are. So the first grouping are the first four. Um, it's like a bit on a horse, rut over a boat. It's like the start of a fire. It's like a deadly poison. And when I, the, the main point I want to talk about here is that we just vastly underestimate the power of our words. We underestimate the power of our words. Um, I think about the, the, especially the one, the rudder of a boat. Um, one of the largest cargo ships in the world is called the MSC Irina. And it can carry 240,000 tons of weight on its ship. And the boat itself weighs over 100,000 tons. It's like immeasurable. But, and you know those, you guys know those, those huge shipping containers, the 20-foot ones? It can carry over 24,000 of them, 25, stacked on top of each other 25 times. That's how huge it is. And after 2,000 years of technology, after the, this, this letter was written, do you know how the world's largest cargo ships are steered? It's still with the same idea of a rudder just guiding it slowly, this 300,000-ton this ship. Anyone want to guess how much uh, a, the, a modern rudder weighs in the MSCR arena? You guys want to guess how much it weighs? 10 pounds. <laughs> it's a little more than that. It weighs about 45 to 50 tons. Tons. It's this, if you look at the, I, oh, I wish I could, I, I should have pulled up a picture, but it's crazy. It's this massive, massive boat. It's like, it's like a little town on a boat, and the rudder is really just like this little thing. It still weighs 50 tons, but if you think about it, 50 tons in the context of over 350,000 ton, tons is less than 0.01% of its weight. 0.01% of its weight is directing the entire ship on where to go. So think about all the things that could be on that ship. Uh, an entire city's food supply could be on that ship. And uh, a fleet of cars can be on that ship. Uh, all of my Amazon purchases for the year could be maybe on that ship. And yet, if the rudder is not perfectly on target over the course of the trip, none of those things will get to its destination. Nothing. Um, you know, the, pro the months of growing the produce, the work of creating each car, the processes that, you know, would build all the toys and gadgets, none of it would amount to anything if the rudder is not perfectly on target all the time throughout the entire course. And the same is true for us. We could be doing everything right 
excelling at our workplace, serving at church, doing the chores at home, but one word in a heated moment will destroy a family. When we think about sanctification and growing in maturity, what do we think about? Normally we think about, okay, do, we, do I know the, the name of all the books in the Bible? Do I know, uh, can I, am I able to pray? Uh, do I, you know, do I serve in some capacity? And maturity, you know, it includes those things, but it doesn't come without mastery in controlling our words. And Jacob isn't really talking about, like, having eloquent speech. You don't have to be, like, an English major or, like, a master oratory expert to, to be mature. And, in fact, some of the most damaging words are the simple ones. And many of us probably know that. So then how can we go from underestimating the power of what we say to maturity? I think one, one, uh, one thing that I've had to learn to do, and I'm continually learning, is how to audit my words. How to audit my words. I remember one time years ago, there was a church event that I was kind of skeptical and concerned about. And um, after the event had gone through, we were talking and like, uh, just kind of recapping what happened. And I was... I voiced my concern uh, in a way that probably wasn't appropriate for a group setting. And I didn't know, but I really hurt and affected people in that room um, that I wasn't directly talking to. And so I had uh, someone come up to me, a beloved brother and trusted friend, and he was like, hey, you know, the way that you said that, the things that you said were really hurtful to people. Yeah, I know you didn't mean that. And so, um, it, not necessarily because it wasn't true, but because I didn't really consider others in the way that I said it. Um, I could have voiced my concern privately or had more grace with my feedback. Um, he audited my words for me, and it shaped the way that I understood how to carry uh, the weight of my words, especially as a leader. We have to be better at auditing our conversations. And so here are some questions that I have uh, that I like to ask for myself. Um, every now and then as I talk to people and as I minister to people. One is, what percent of the conversation did I talk? What percent of the conversation did I talk? I, I think about how earlier in James 1 it says, let everyone be quick to listen and slow to speak. Slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak. So in the context of getting angry, that makes sense. But in the context of having conversation with someone, I think it also is still applicable. We should be eager, desiring to listen to the other before speaking ourselves. Um, if we find that we are dominating our conversations with people, uh, if someone, if I were to ask you, hey, how was your conversation with so-and-so, and you're like, oh, I don't remember what they said, probably because you were saying a lot, then maybe we are not as considerate as we could be uh, in talking with people. Another thing that I ask myself is, did I consider how the other person would feel before I speak? Um, Colossians 4.6 says this. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And I like the fact that Paul implies that you have to answer each person differently based on who they are and based on the situation. No matter who it is, your speech should always be gracious. Like something seasoned with salt, your words should comfort like good food. And even if you're having a hard conversation with someone, regardless, let your speech be gracious to them. 
<clears throat> and if someone is on your nerves, or if there's someone that you're not gelling with, or the person is just barely an acquaintance, or their family, and you're too close to them, would they say this about you, that your speech is gracious? Is it seasoned with salt so that it benefits them, that they come out of the conversation feeling better? Deep down, I understand the conflict. I sometimes want to feel justified in speaking my mind and telling the truth and saying it, and it feels unjust if they didn't know what I was thinking, right? And yet the Lord calls us to a higher way. He calls us a way that trusts in God's judgment and his timing, a way that rests on God's finished work in our life so that we don't have to prove ourselves to everybody everywhere all the time. Um, it's a way that has our social needs met because we are already friends with the king. And when we have all our needs met, we can consider how we meet the needs of other people. When we have received compassion and grace from God, we can extend that same compassion and grace to others. Ephesians 4.29 says this, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. So as you're starting to see, I mean, we're bringing up these scripture references to say that across the Bible, there's an emphasis on how we use our words. And his directive in Ephesians 4 is only what's helpful for building up according to their needs, not according to your needs or your desires or your passions or the things that you really want to talk about, according to their needs. And hopefully many of us have had conversations with people, maybe it's with like mentors or leaders or friends, where you walk away and you just like feel full. Hopefully you guys have had that lately. Um, I love having those kinds of conversations. Like our souls were just like tended to, and we've been able to connect on a deep level. Man, what if our church was filled with people who would, who everyone who, who considered and wanted to give that to others? What if we were filled with people who put others' needs before our own? What if we were aiming to benefit people, those who listened? The reality is, when we talk about the Acts 2 church, you guys are familiar with that famous Acts 2 passage, the fellowship of the believers, how they sold all their possessions and they distributed the pro proceeds to all, um, as any had needed, you know, then it says that everyone was content with what they had. We look at that and we're like, yeah, we need to be an Acts 2 church. And it's true, and it's why we do awesome things like um, the food and coat drive. Uh, thank you, Ray, for doing that. But, but we also realize that there's not many physical needs that our church has, but there are deeply social and emotional needs that we all kind of have. We need someone. Sometimes we just need a friend, someone to talk about our weeks with, someone who um, just need to, we, we just need to be checked up on. We just need to, someone to ask the hard questions. And... I know that there are so many people with emotional and social needs here in this room, and I don't know if they're all getting met. And, you know, Pastor David has office hours, but he has only so many hours. And I have only so many hours, but it's on everyone, all of us here, to kind of fulfill and share what we have to become the Acts 2 church socially, emotionally. Um, if we aren't needing to sell things physically to make sure everyone has their physical needs met, the least we can do is take initiative. Take initiative to ensure that our church members aren't feeling lonely or have their spiritual needs met. If they have something to pray, they need prayer for, you finding what that is and praying for them. 
Also, has anyone told you how they felt after talking to you? This is another good measure for me to, to audit my conversation. If, um, or if you're really comfortable with someone or bold, you can even ask them, like, hey, in general, how do you feel after talking to me? This takes a lot of humility and vulnerability and willingness to change, but to be able to ask that question will really help you gauge if you're living out these passages, because, man, uh, I've gotten some you know, deep insights into my soul when like, someone, usually Pastor David, because I'm close with him, I'm like, he's like, man, you're like, you seem really stressed out. Like, you just keep talking about this or that. And I'm like, you know, I probably am. <laughs> and it comes out just in the conversation. And I'm glad that he calls me out on those kinds of things um, because he's, he has concern for my soul. And maybe I appear that way to some of you guys or whatever. Um, being able to just, like, realize how do I feel after talking to that person or how does that person feel after talking to me Getting that understanding will kind of help to audit your conversations. So do we want to grow and become mature? If so, we should learn how to audit our words. We must be aware of how we handle our conversations um, so that others are benefited by when we speak. So that first grouping of metaphors speak of the deadly nature and explosive power of our words. Um, it's like a wildfire, a deadly poison, etc. And the second grouping of metaphors, he says, he talks about a spring that pours out fresh water and salt water. Um, he talks about a grapevine producing figs and et cetera. That's talking about how it highlights the hypocrisy in our hearts. So in verse 9 of James 3, <clears throat> it says, with it we bless, with words, we bless our Lord Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So not only do we have more destructive power in our tongues than we can comprehend, but what makes them worse is when we contrast them to the praise that we give to God our Father. You know, there's only one attribute of God that's mentioned three times in a row when describing him. It's holy. Think about Isaiah 6.3. Uh, where um, the angels are crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Whole earth is filled with his glory. And to repeat something three times isn't just like a poetic um, repetition. It's making that attribute bigger. It's like the difference between something that's, that's big versus like big, big, versus big, big, big. Um, and so you're emphasizing the big. And for all the angels of all creation to be seeing this singular phrase over and over again in heaven, uh, holy, holy, holy. Holiness, um, it's declaring to the highest degree that God is utterly, completely, dramatically, he's set apart. He's holy. Uh, holiness means that he's sacred without blemish, perfectly unmarred without sin. There's not a single wrong action, word, or thought that lives and dwells inside of him. And to be in contact with a holy God when you aren't holy meant instant death. And here we are, his prized possession, created in his image, made in his likeness, called to rule and reign like him. But our words are just all over the place. We praise him on Sunday and we curse his people on Monday. Or even earlier than that, we praise him on Sunday and then curse his people on Sunday. We speak rudely to people on Sunday afternoon. That sort of variance and hypocrisy just does not exist within the character of God. He is only pure water. 
And one day, in our resurrected states, you know, it won't exist with us either. We will be pure. But in between, there's this reality, this acknowledgement, like, man, we're being hypocrites with our words if we are doing that. We all need to grow in that. You know, and I think we believe that <clears throat> our words are just, you know, quickly forgotten or quickly spoken, and just as easily as they're spoken, and that's just not true. Uh, there's this one quote I heard. It says, be careful with your words, because once they're said, they can only be forgiven and not forgotten. The difficult truth is that preachers and leaders, we say a lot of stuff. We preach a lot of things and speak a lot more words than is normal um, and are used as the mouth of God. So not only that, after pouring our hearts out for 30, 45 minutes, we have to greet people and talk to people, pray for people, counsel people. That's a lot of words being spoken, and that's a lot of potential to be hypocritical. Um, we can preach the love of God all we want from the pulpit, but if we are not showing the love of God to you from the lunch table, then it hurts our witness to Christ. And we would be a net negative for the kingdom. And so, you know, I would not be surprised if you guys have been hurt by the observed hypocrisy of myself, uh, of Pastor David, and I hope that you're able to let us know when that happens. We may not be able to bridle our tongue as well as we'd like, and we're not perfect, but even so, take comfort in what it says in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, 36, 37 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word that they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. How much do your words matter? They matter so much that on the day of judgment, our words will be held up against us for all to see and we'll be judged by them. And now with Christ, there is no condemnation, no fear of condemnation. Amen. We, if we believe in Jesus, we believe that he lived the perfect life that that we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. His record, record will become our record, his righteousness, our righteousness. But his sacrifice for us doesn't mean that we can just say whatever we want now. No. And we, you know, Romans 6 talks about that in that famous passage. It's like, what shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? No, by no means. How can we who, who have died to sin still live in it? And uh, in verse 12 through 14, I want to read this part. He says, because of that, he says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. So for those of us that might feel like, well, you know, I can't control what I say sometimes, for those that think it's overkill to audit every word that you say, consider this, that what Christ bought you for was not just forgiveness from sins. It's power to be in control over yourself. You have agency over your own life. It's your thoughts, your wills, your words. The Holy Spirit is active and living in you. And so sin will have no dominion over you. And since you're not under law, but by grace, Fear of guilt and shame will not produce lasting change in you, but it's this accept, coming from this place of acceptance, receiving forgiveness before you even deserved it. Only that can give us the agency to live better.
And we will never get to that point of perfection in our life, but by God's grace, by every word spoken, we'll get a little better. And to bless a little more, to be a little more considerate in our words. And when we mess up, the Lord will lift us back again and we'll enter into glory where sin will no longer have dominion over our tongues anymore. And we can join with the angels to sing holy, holy, holy. So this passage shows us that we underestimate the power of our words. It also highlights the hypocrisy that we have when we worship God with our words. But it also teaches us uh, the practicality of a better way. And that's 13 through 18. And it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. He says, This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So there's this contrast of godly wisdom and demonic wisdom. So demonic wisdom, he's saying, leads to boasting and lying. Those words um, puff us up, and they come from bad places. They come from bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. It uses words to lift yourself up and make yourself better rather than lifting others up. It's the wisdom of the world. It's what gets other people promoted before you on the corporate ladder. It's how some places people get to places of world and governmental power. It's not the way of Jesus. Godly wisdom Wisdom above is is characterized by a few things. <coughs> Pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. It talks about full of good mercy and good fruits. And you think about like the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 6, right? Um, Galatians 5, 6, 5. Um, the, there's some overlap here in those metaphors. And you know, when I think about these attributes, uh, open gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, impartial, sincere. You know what arguments on social media are never like? They're never like any of those things. It's very, very hard to have that. Um, Rather, the aim for us as believers are to be peacemakers, creators of peace, and in so doing, we'll experience a harvest of righteousness. That's what he says. So even in explaining your way, there's a gentleness to it. There's not an intensity that's trying to make much of yourself. There's no rush to it or an urgency like you are the only one that is going to lead to change when God is the one that can do that. And there's definitely no bias or ulterior motive to make yourself feel higher. Um, And that's the kind of purity that I want my conversations to be marked by. And so, as we close our time, I just want to end with this verse in James that we read in, one, uh, in the first chapter. And it kind of encapsulates everything that we're talking about in James 3. James 1.26 says, If anyone thinks he's re- religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, and this person's religion is worthless. It doesn't matter if you know the whole Bible. It doesn't matter if you lead a worship team or if you preach on Sunday. 
It doesn't matter if you're super well-versed in every cultural argument for Jesus. To be unable to control your tongue nullifies it all. To speak of heavenly things with demonic wisdom does not advance the kingdom. It hurts it. To speak of heavenly things with demonic wisdom does not advance the kingdom. It hurts it. So, (laughs) I just might. So, where are we with this? Maybe some of us have said words that we need to repent of this week. Maybe there's people that you need to apologize to because you've been operating from a place of demonic wisdom. Maybe we need to start talking less and listening more. Maybe we need to turn to the Lord who has grace for you and then apologize to people where necessary. And let's watch our words. Let's consider the other before we consider ourselves. And let's be gracious to one another as we're struggling through this crazy journey called life. And let's be peaceable and gentle, not aggressive and self-serving. Think before we speak. And just watch as love grows for one another. Amen? Let's pray. God, you've spoken to us a hard word. Because who can be blameless when we read this passage? Who is a perfect man able to bridle their tongue and be perfect in that regard? No one. And so, Lord, we all need forgiveness, we all need grace. But we all need your spirit who is able to work in us and move in us and make us and shape us to be like your son Jesus. Who in the most perfect way used words not to hurt but to heal. Not to make a name for himself but to lift others up. And so, Lord, we look to you now. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Now we get a chance to uh, do communion. Communion is a time... that Jesus specifically instructed us... To recall, uh, he said, whenever you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he said these words. This is my body. When you take this bread, it's broken for you. Um, this is my cup poured out for you. This is my blood. And he's inviting us to the table, to relationship with him but also to remember the words that he said on the cross. He said, it is finished. We don't have to work and toil for God's acceptance or love. It has been finished for us on the cross.
because he poured out his blood and he broke his body for us. Jesus wants to invite you into that first. And then he wants us to respond by extending the grace that he's given to us. So no matter what you've done or said this week, Jesus is inviting you back to his table, to him. So let's come to the table of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for the act of communion. We're reminded of the great lengths that you went to purchase us. You loved us before we did a single right thing. In all our messiness and screw-ups and mess-ups, And yet you love us so much that you don't want us to stay as we are. But you desire for us to be perfect, holy like you are. And so Lord, with open hands, we say we're open. We're willing to change. Thank you, Jesus that by your spirit you can change us. Pray that you would use us for your glory, for good. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I just, I don't think I can speak a message like James 3 without challenging all of us to put it into practice. And so, I think in the same groups that you guys were in, or you guys can, if you're, if you're new or haven't, weren't here for our opening discussion, you can join a group. In the same groups that we're in, can we just pray and bless each other? Pray for someone on your right or your left, and just get back in your groups and just pray for them. And then after a few minutes, we can come back together and worship the Lord so that both blessing each other and the Lord will have been done today. Okay, so let's get back into our groups and let's just pray and bless one another. doesn't have to be crazy long, but let's just do it. Yes, God, you are holy. You are so worthy and you are so lovely. And our desire is to be holy like you in word and in thought and in deed. Thank you for giving us grace to live another day and have another chance. I pray that we would honor you with our words, knowing that our words can create worlds just like yours did. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. May the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Um, bless one another. Let's have fellowship and speak kind words to one another. I think that's the way and the will of the Lord. Amen.